Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Many are using the term epidemic to describe the current problem of drug and or alcohol abuse in the United States. Virtually everyone we know has been negatively impacted by this problem. Yet for so many that are experiencing the devastating effects of drug and or alcohol abuse, they don't know who to turn to for help. Who can we trust to care for our loved ones? Transformations Treatment Center is one of the most respected, ethical, and professional drug and alcohol treatment centers in the world with a strong focus on individualized care, offering a wide range of holistic, specialized, and medically supervised treatment programs. We know that many of you have questions. Take the time to call Transformations Treatment Center for the answers. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Or go online to transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from New York State. We have Jim Banish on the phone. Jim is a patrol officer for, is it Warren County Sheriff's Department? Yes, sir, Warren County. And he's also a member of New York LEAP. That's N-Y-L-E-A-P, Law Enforcement Assistance Program. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining us on Law Enforcement Today's show. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while, to be totally honest with you. He brings a perspective to law enforcement that we don't hear about in the news media. We don't hear about in Hollywood. We don't hear about in the movies, wherever it might be. So, Jim, I do appreciate you being willing to talk about these things and, and many of them are quite upsetting. Before we get the details of that, let's talk about New York Leap, what that is and what you do. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. Yeah, I'm the uh, president and founder of New York Leap, the New York Law Enforcement Assistance Program. Uh, we work in conjunction with 15 other states uh, throughout the country. It started in South Carolina and Georgia primarily. And um, what we do is we're, we're building peer support teams within agencies and uh, gathering them uh, so that we can do hold the briefings throughout the state for agencies that don't have peer support because it's not commonplace throughout law enforcement. And uh, we also are offering a, a pretty big deal as a, a post-critical incident seminar. We do four of them currently in New York State. And uh, so we spread them out throughout the state. We do one in Buffalo, one in Binghamton, one in Long Island, New York City area, and then one upstate just north of Albany in Saratoga, Warren County area. And what they do is we're bringing officers who have been involved in, in critical incidents on the job and uh, are showing some adverse effects from that. So uh, we take them for three days, and, uh, you know, there's a clinical aspect to it, but it's basically a peer-to-peer program. And uh, we follow the FBI model of a post-critical incident seminar to a T, and uh, just like all the other states, it, it's pretty much standardized now, and, and uh, we've seen some amazing results from this. First of all, I appreciate what you do. I want to thank you for your service in law thank enforcement, you. and thank you for what you do with New York Leap. Back in my day, I remember one of the last shootings I was in, 
we started talking about these things that we needed to have sort of critical incident stress debriefing. We needed to have some sort of peer support. None of that existed in the 80s at, at that time. Our idea of peer support back then was grab a case of beer and go to a parking lot and talk <laughs> afterwards. And I'm not saying that was all bad. That that certainly no. helped, but it it didn't it didn't address all the issues. And after a while, it was like putting a Band-Aid on an arterial bleed, if you know what I mean. That's exactly what it is. And, uh, you know, a lot of places call it choir practice or whatever you want to call it. But uh, that, that has been uh, what we've done throughout the career. I've been to, on the job 21 years, and uh, that's, that's what it was when I started the job, and that was acceptable. And uh, we were taught, you know, from the academy on up, you know, you don't talk about uh, if you got a problem, you don't talk about it. You know, there's a stigma attached to it. If you say that you need help or... You know, any type of mental health treatment in law enforcement, you're looked at as, as crazy or, uh, you know, you're, you're never going to get promoted. Uh, you could get demoted. You, you're you not going to get the special assignments that you want. There's all those stigmas that are that are attached to, to officers getting help. I've even heard, and it's proven not to be true, that so many people won't seek help because they fear that it's a career ender. Absolutely. Uh, that's what we hear uh, the most often. Uh, there's no trust within their agency. They don't know who to talk to. There are no resources available. A lot of places and agencies have uh, an EAP program that is uh, outsourced. So it's like a third party that um, you'll you'll deal with somebody who has no idea what law enforcement deals with on a daily basis, no idea what our, our, our culture is like. So it's it's definitely difficult to talk to somebody, reach out to somebody that has no idea what you're what you're going through. So the peer-to-peer programs, like we found uh, nationwide, they have the best statistics on recovery. They show that the peer-to-peer programs are what works. So that's what we're going with. And it does work. All this is after my time. But I remember going through trying to talk with counselors or therapists or whatever term people want to use after some of these things. And it was as if I was speaking Greek and they were speaking French. There was a, a divide between the two where I knew they knew what they were talking about from their mm-hmm. education, but they had no firsthand knowledge and they would wind up inadvertently asking stupid questions, which made things worse. This is a huge problem nationwide, Jay. And what we've done with NILEAP and uh, we're doing throughout the country and trying to implement this more is uh, we go through a vetting process and we find trauma therapists or clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever, that are in or have former law enforcement experience or understand the culture. They're either married to an officer or have some type of connection to the law enforcement field. And we take those clinicians and we develop them and bring them in and we use them pretty much primarily throughout the, the state now because within our culture, there's a, you know, it's a defined set that, that we, a kind of a language per se, if you will, yeah. that we use and we use some pretty dark humor. We use some, uh, you know, things to coping mechanisms. But uh, if you were in a locker room and listening to a bunch of cops talk, you'd probably think you might be in, a, you know, a loony bin or an insane asylum because of the way that we talk and our dark humor. So if you go to see a clinician that's not familiar with law enforcement, that doesn't understand our culture, there's a possibility, especially with the red flag laws and whatnot uh, that are out there now, that, you know, you, you might be seen as, as off-center. And when in reality, this is very normal for us because having those conversations and talking and speaking freely, if you will, that is what we use for therapy, whether we know it or not. Those, those guys are getting through, you know, a, a traumatic event or, or processing an event, 
And uh, if you don't have a clinician that understands the culture and understands why we talk the way we do, why we act the way we do, uh, there's a real problem. There's a real divide. So it's been uh, it's been instrumental, especially with Nightleap, is bringing on board clinical aspects and clinical people who understand our culture. And, you know, they're not looking to red flag somebody. And, and there's a lot of depression involved with this, this job as well. And um, we, need, we need to make sure that we have the proper therapists in place when we're dealing with uh, law enforcement culture. You're absolutely right about all the things you mentioned. Before we get lost in the conversation, where can people get more information, whether it be they need help or they're from another agency, another state? Where can they get more information about what you do and the services you offer? About NILEAP uh, specifically, we have a website. It's www.nileap.org. And um, we have a lot of the information that we have uh, as far as post-critical incident seminars and peer support. But if somebody, I mean, needs some help now, there's there's a lot of other places that have been up and coming. Um, out in New York State alone, we use the uh, Western New York Law Enforcement Helpline. It's a 24-hour call service. It's anonymous. People can call in. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, 1-800 numbers that are out there that haven't been out there traditionally are starting to develop and becoming really good. They'll have either another officer on the other line waiting to take the call to talk to you, another peer, and then they can get you hooked up and linked up with uh, services. There's also a new program coming out online. It's called PTP, Post-Tour Processing. That should be released pretty soon. It's an online, anonymous venue that you can go on and talk about uh, your, your tour or if something's bothering you. And again, resources will be available to you from that. We're going to take so a short break. Important. We are talking with Jim Banish. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Remember to check out our website for news articles, past episodes of the podcast, download our free app, and much more. That's letradioshow.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Finally, our heroes have access to a world-class program for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and more. The Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for substance abuse, addiction, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Plus, they offer complete treatment for mental health issues for those without substance abuse problems. In addition to multiple rehabilitation and holistic treatments for all those suffering from substance abuse problems, the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformation Treatment Center is a nationally acclaimed Veterans and First Responders Treatment Program, where law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the separate and highly specialized treatment they need. Got questions? They have the answers at the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at helpforourheroes.com. Back to our conversation with Jim Banish on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Jim is a patrol officer with uh, Warren County, New York Sheriff's Department. You've been on the job, he said, 21 years? Yes, sir, 21 years. And you are also peer support for your agency and also involved with uh, nyleap.org or newyorkleap.org. One of the things that I hear all the time from people is that they don't have a comprehension of what kind of stress. When I'm talking about stress, I'm not talking about, oh my goodness, I'm running late for work, that <laughs> our law enforcement officers and other first responders go through. I, I try to explain it to people this way. Imagine going from being absolute calm or being bored out of your skull 
into in a fight for your life within 15 seconds and repeat that process a couple times every eight hours and do that for 20 years or 25 years, five days a week, and how do you think you turn out? Yeah. Well, I can tell you how they turn out. They end up uh, being pretty heavy. That's why the uh, life expectancy of a police officer in, in the United States is 58 years old, when the average life expectancy of, of you know an adult is in their 70s, you know, late 70s now. So uh, that, that stress takes a toll on you, and it, it compounds. So. It does. It. I don't understand the dynamics of it. I've had experts on law enforcement officers who wind up getting their PhDs and, and things like uh, psychology, and they talk about what stress does, the cortisol levels and depression and, and the correlation. All I know is that, and this is almost said in a joking manner, we would have guys come on the police department that were choir boys, happily married, two kids, and four or five years on a job, next thing you know, they're drinking like a fish, they're living with a stripper, and they never see their children. And you're like, what happened to that guy? Where did he go? Of course, that's an exaggeration, but they begin to change after a period of time. I think the only exaggeration on that is it's probably uh, more closer to 10 years instead of five, but uh, you're spot on. There's really not that exaggeration. So. What we're dealing with in this aspect is, is what's called cumulative career traumatic stress. And over the, the lifetime of your career, whether it be 20 or 25 years, the analogy that I've been using is, is like, uh, you know, you got a bucket and uh, you go to a pretty bad call and you throw a little pebble in that yeah. bucket. And then uh, it's pretty easy to carry around. It's only a pebble in a bucket. But obviously, as years go on, that bucket starts to fill up with more pebbles and that, that gets quite a bit heavier. We don't have um, at this point in time where we haven't been uh, taking care of ourselves and getting rid of some of that weight and some of those pebbles out of that bucket. So, like I said, they've, they've diagnosed it and come up with a term. It's called cumulative career traumatic stress, which ends up manifesting with the same symptoms as uh, post-traumatic stress injury or post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, we're seeing a lot of cops with between 10 and 15 and even 20 years on developing all these signs and symptoms of PTSD, and they can't pinpoint it to one certain call, but there's always those calls that stick with you. There's, there's just some of those calls that aren't going to get away from you. They're not going to leave you. And um, without processing those calls and, and those, those traumatic incidents properly, you're never going to get rid of it. No, and I don't think, even at this late stage of my life, and by the way, when I was in a police academy as a 20-year-old, they were telling us the average life expectancy for a Baltimore police back then was 52. And most of them died within two years of retiring. So I've been retired now 28 years. Or I got retired young and early. I want 28 or 30 more. I don't, <laughs> don't want to go anywhere anytime soon. But you're absolutely right. Some of the things during the career, even all these years later, I still feel the effects from. Now, it's not like it was. It's not dramatic. It's not dark. It's not frightening. It's none of this Rambo stuff you see on the movies. Right. But it's uncomfortable. And I always have to stay on, on watch, uh, make sure it's stupid, Yeah, make sure I eat around the same time every day, make sure I get the sleep I need to get, try to keep my mind clear, don't rush, stay away from people who are real negative and confrontational, all that sort of stuff. And that, that's a protective mechanism. I mean, we come, I guess there's a term that we use, hypervigilance, yeah. because you become hypervigilant the longer you're on the job. That's why you look at, you can drive by a cop's house and you'll see all the cars backed into the driveway. You'll see cameras all around. You know, this is just part of the culture. We become 
you know, not only cynical, but very hypervigilant and very aware of our surroundings. And Absolutely. it makes it uncomfortable to, to go to venues that have, you know, concerts that we used to go to before we became a cop and going to, you know, a hockey game, football game, whatever it is. We don't like people. We don't like being around people. Uh, we know what society is. We know the reality of what society is, so we don't want to be surrounded by it. So we start to isolate. And the longer you see in a career, I mean, you look at before you became a cop and how many friends you had. How many friends that you had were not police officers or not in law enforcement? And you look at yourself in five years and then in 10 years and then in 15 years, that circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller because you're isolating, you're self-medicating, you're not dealing with the stress and the trauma that the job has given to you. And then if you do reach out, obviously there's the, you know, the stigma attached and you think that you're going to end your career. So all that stuff bottling up, you know, it, that's, that's what we, we look at. And that's why it's funny you mentioned the retirees because... There's really nothing tracking retirees right now, but between the first and fifth year of their retirement, we're seeing a lot of death, yeah. we're seeing a lot of suicide, suicidal ideology, a lot of depression. This job is your identity. From, from the time you walk into that academy until the time you retire, that gun and that badge is you. You are a part of it, and it is a part of you. You take that identity away, and if you're not prepared for it to go into retirement, it's a, it's a culture shock because you still are hypervigilant. You still have all these after effects from that job. And yet you don't have your identity with a shield and a gun. And you look at all the people who retire, hardly any of them ever come back. Nobody ever has contact with them from the department. They lose everything. They lose themselves the day they retire. I've heard it said the minute you retire, the door leaves, you're obsolete. The door closes. <laughs> it's a, as true. if people forgot who you were. And there was a, quite, a, quite a long period of time where I didn't talk with any of the men and women I worked with in the, in the police department. And I wound up going to a reunion several years ago and saw all these people that I had been through, you know, hell and back with. And it was as if no time at all had passed and we were able to reestablish relationships. And when I say I lost touch with them, it wasn't because they forgot about me. It's because I turned my back on all that. I wasn't ready to leave when my career ended, but it was over and... I was very bitter and very angry and Mm -hmm. had a hard time making that adjustment. No, that's exactly right. The anger, the cynicism, you know, the confusion of of what you're feeling when you leave. And and what's sad is you've gone, like you said, to hell and back with these people. This is your family outside of your family. You've done everything. You've eaten dinner with this person or your partner or these people for how many years? You've shared all, I mean, they know all about you and your family and your kids and your, your, your wives. Usually I say wives because cops like to get married several times throughout their career. But uh, I, I would change uh, that from like to sometimes it's unfortunate, <laughs> but you kind of have to because we, yeah. we have a tendency to self-destruct the, or become self-destructive exactly. when it comes to our relationships. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about as we continue our conversation with Jim Banish. We're going to talk about his career in law enforcement. We're going to talk about some of the things that create problems for the law enforcement officer and subsequently their family, and actually intimate details of what he's been through. We're all over social media. Be sure to like and follow our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. We're on Twitter. Follow us at LET Radio Show Podcast. And on Instagram, look for LET Radio Show Podcast. Of course, don't forget our website, letradioshow.com. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. 
how did I transition from police work to a career in radio? Plus, host of the syndicated Law Enforcement Today radio talk show and podcast. I attended the Connecticut Schools of Broadcasting, where I learned by doing. At the Connecticut Schools of Broadcasting, students learn in months, not years. For veterans, some or all your tuition could be covered by your VA benefits. Connecticut Schools of Broadcasting, training in audio, video production, television, sports, podcasting, radio, and web development. Get more information. Call 800-887-2346 or online at gocsb.com. For special offers and consideration, tell them you heard about them from Law Enforcement Today. Back to our conversation with Jim Banish. Jim is a police officer in Warren County, New York. Whereabouts is that, Jim? It's upstate. We're, we're a little bit north of Albany in the Lake George area. Okay. And uh, it's a very beautiful area in the Adirondack Mountains. I've got to get up there. Uh, we've talked before. My daughter's living in Buffalo, New York. I love western New York. I love the state in the summertime. Uh, maybe late spring and <laughs> early fall. Time. Yeah, but in the winter time, no, it's a no bueno for me. I'm not going there. <laughs> You're a smart man. Uh, all, some of the gray skies and uh, the, the short day and the cold weather and all that yeah. stuff. It when I was younger, I could handle it. I liked it. Nowadays, I just find I'm getting depressed. That uh, it, it's and my wife is much worse at it than I am. So, your career in law enforcement. Yes, if, if there was a time. Can you look back in your career and say, I was a different guy before this than I was after this call or this incident? Uh, well, for me, it, it was, I think, the, the largest change was, uh, you know, with my brother. Uh, I think that was when I saw the biggest change in me. I knew that things, and I had about 10 years on the job, and things were starting to slip at that point, and uh, I found myself starting to isolate. You know, I started drinking a little bit here and there, uh, you know, a little more than I should be, and uh, just not, not really caring about the things I used to care about in a nutshell, you know, and, and, and everything was, I was just bitter. You know, I just started getting angry around, around 10 years. I can relate to everything you're saying. <laughs> what, what happened with your brother? Uh, well, uh, my brother and I grew up, my whole family is a very close family. We grew up in a real close family in Western New York. And, um, you know, my, my father was a judge for 32 years out in the, uh, the town of Allen. And, um, kind of was our inspiration into, into getting into law enforcement. My older brother, Joey, was uh, a phenomenal, a very smart person. He went to St. Bonaventure University and excelled there. He was going to go to Texas Tech Law School, and instead he decided to become a trooper. He had passed the, uh, the New York State Police exam with, with uh, a good grade and got right into the class at 21 years old. He kind of laid, uh, laid the foundation for, for me and my brother and you know, the, the legacy of my family, but uh, he uh, was, was was spot on with this job, and his whole life he dedicated to the state police. He uh, he ascended to, to the rank of sergeant pretty quickly, and um, and then he went to investigations. He became uh, he went to the ECI Bureau of Criminal Investigation with the state police, and then ultimately uh, he became a lieutenant in his early 30s, which is uh, which is pretty tough to do, especially in the in the New York State Police. You know, it's a very competitive exam and, and process to get there. Uh, he made it in his early 30s, mid 30s, and um, he got to where he wanted to be. He uh, was stationed at the academy in uh, in the fall of 2007, which is finally where he ended up wanting to go. He wanted to kind of mold new troopers and new new police officers into his model. He, you know, his integrity was second to none. He was just a warm and caring person, and uh, all of his um, subordinates absolutely loved him. He never forgot where he came from. He was one of those guys that was, he was just a cop's cop. Right. 
And um, uh, in the in the fall of, of 2007, I started to see this this job really wearing him down. I thought I was you know coming to a grind. Uh, I saw my brother really starting to drink some more and um, losing weight. Uh, my brother was always in shape and always you know a big fitness buff. And you know they used to have nicknames for him. They'd call him Trooper Chippendale because he was so handsome. And uh, he was stationed in Long Island as a sergeant. And they called him the Long Island Lolita. I mean he had nicknames all over but uh he was you know always a good looking guy in really good shape and uh, i started to see this this change in him like drastic change and he just started going downhill and uh to the point where i got concerned and uh and i started asking him about his drinking and his lack of eating and he kept telling me it was just it was just stress from the job just just administrative stress there's a lot of politics you know being a lieutenant is not not very easy and um <clears throat> i watched this uh continue to descend and then in the uh in 2008 in, in january or february i think it was we were you know we were sitting there watching the daytona 500 at my house had a fire going and drinking a couple beers eating a pizza and uh, i just remember looking across the couch at him and he was staring off at that thousand yard stare and uh, i saw his eyes just welling up and, and, and tears running down his face and uh, so i you know i yelled out to him i said joey you okay and uh, he kind of wiped it off and shrugged it off and, you know, made it like nothing. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. I uh, just, just was thinking about something. No big deal. And uh, I said, hey, man, this, this is, you got me concerned because I've seen you obviously lose a lot of weight. And I see you drinking a lot more. And uh, I know you're not sleeping. Uh, what's going on? And uh, he said, it's just the stress from, from work. He said, this job is just, just eating me up. You wouldn't believe the politics involved. You wouldn't believe the people that, uh, you know, I, I didn't start this job to, to be this person. I, I want to help people. And uh, it's it's not happening, to, you know, to work out that way. And uh, I said, why don't you reach out to somebody? Why don't you get a hold of somebody? And he said, uh, excuse my language, but he said, are you crazy? That would end my career. He said, if I ever told anybody, you know, that I was upset or depressed or had this going on, they would they would take my gun my badge. I'd get demoted. He said, there's no way I'm talking to anybody. I don't trust anybody. I said, you know, you have an EAP program and you should reach out to them. He said, no, there's, I'm not telling anybody anything. So it progressed again for another month or two. And, uh, I, I took it upon myself. I reached out to a friend of mine who I knew was a, uh, a you know, in the clinical end of, of things. And I asked her, I said, any way that you could do an assessment on my brother? Cause I'm, I'm really getting nervous. You know, he's still not sleeping. He's not eating well. And not working out he's losing weight and just drinking all the time and uh, she said yeah yeah i would do that for you and i said it has to be in private it has to be off the cuff nobody can know about this because he doesn't trust anybody so um, i set it up i set it up for a time and a place to meet and the day of that he was supposed to meet with her he canceled and i got a hold of him and he said uh, i'm going to go in and see i'm going to go see a priest i'm going to go talk to him and you know i don't i just i can't trust anybody outside so he went and he talked to a priest that day, and uh, nothing really, I guess, came of it because it was um, April 1st of 2008. I was working an overtime shift, and I was taking some inmates down to the, the state correctional facility because I, I love to do that because I, it was an overtime shift, and the county would pay for lunch, and I would stop in Albany where Joey was stationed and have lunch with him. So I took as many shifts as I could to do these things so I could meet up with Joey for lunch. And... Um, so on this day, I called him in the morning. I'm in the locker room, and I said, Joe, you know, you want to meet up for lunch? I'm heading down to Downstate Correctional, and we'll catch some lunch after that. He sounded really, uh, really groggy on the phone, like he hadn't slept at all. And uh, I asked him if he slept, and he said, no, you know, I didn't get much sleep at all, and I'm very busy today. I got to plan an event up in Lake George, New York, so I'm not going to be able to meet up with you for lunch. So I said, okay, man. 
I'll try it again later, and we'll see if anything changes, any plans change. And uh, so I did. I called him again on the way down, and uh, I got his voicemail. So I dropped the inmates off, and I started headed back uh, towards Albany. And uh, we're getting closer, and I called him, and I got nothing. I sent him a couple text messages. I got nothing back. His girlfriend called me and said, uh, hey, have you heard from Joey? I said, no, I know he's busy with a, with an event up in Lake George, so you know, kind of leave him alone. I don't want to bug him. And she said, I know. I'm just really worried about him. You know, He's not sleeping. He didn't sleep at all last night. I said, all right, I'll, I'll check in on him again. I'll call and see if I can get anything back. So I called a couple more times, and I got a voicemail. Nothing. Um, I got back to my office. I, I punched out, and I started heading home. Uh, I got a little ways down the road, and I got a phone call from his girlfriend, and uh, she was she was screaming on the other end of the phone. And uh, she said, Joey shot himself. And uh, I told her to uh, to hang up and to call 911 and that I was on my way. So the first thing I thought in my head was, uh, you know, I couldn't believe this was happening, but I better call my mom. Everybody in my family always called mom. Mom, you know, she she ruled the roost. So I called my mom, and she happened to be working at the school that I went to, and she was in the nurse's office. And I said, Mom, I need you to sit down. You know, where are you? She said, I'm in the nurse's office, Jimmy. Uh, you know, what would you do now? I said, no, Mom, I, <laughs> I didn't do anything. Uh, I, I need you to sit down, though. She said, hurry up, Jimmy. i got to get to my next class. What's going on? So I said, Mom, just sit down. So I finally got her to sit down, and I said, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, Mom, but uh, I believe Joey, Joey just shot himself, and I'm on my way to go see him. And there was a pause, and it was quiet. And then a few minutes later, I could hear her crying in the background, and I said, make sure you get everybody else you know, coming towards Albany. I'll update you as it goes. And she stopped me, and she said, Jimmy, get there as fast as you can, and you promise me you'll do anything you can to help him. I don't care what shape he's in. I'll take care of him the rest of his life. Just get there and help him. And we're not no we're going to take a short break. We're talking with Jim Banish. This is the Law Enforcement Today radio show. We'll be right back. We all know that law enforcement, first responders, and military have dangerous jobs. They see and experience traumas that most can't even imagine. And all too often, that takes a toll leading to substance abuse, PTSD, and co-occurring mental health disorders. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to helping protect those who protect. Call 888-991-9725 online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has a nationally acclaimed Veterans and First Responders Treatment Program, offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the dedicated and highly specialized treatment they need at Transformations. Their program features first responders and veterans therapists helping first responders and veterans. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. Back to our conversation with Jim Banish on the Law Enforcement Today show. Jim's talking about, for those who are coming in late, Jim's talking about his, his brother, Joe, who is a career law enforcement officer at New York State Police, that uh, he got a phone call from his brother's girlfriend that, that his brother had shot himself. And so when we left before the break, Jim, you're talking about, by the way, 
doing a great job talking about it. I don't know if I could. That you Thank were you. on the way easy. to your brother's place and you called your mom. And I'll be honest with you, I got I was tearing up when you were talking about that. Um, and this is something that happens far too often. And by the way, those listening, this is not new. They want they want to tell you that it's new. It's maybe increased a bit with law enforcement and first responder suicides, but it's not new. It was a problem back before I was a rookie cop. Joe Wamba used to write about it back in the seventies. Um, so you're on the way to your brothers, and I mean, your your head's got to be racing. It's um, I, I can't even remember what I was thinking. I know I was in a fog, but I knew I had to get there as fast as possible. And um, so I had I'd hung up the phone with my mom, and I promised her that I would go check on them and do what I could. Shortly thereafter, I arrived on scene, and uh, there was just a, a slew of police cars and, and brass everywhere. So I, I started walking towards the house, and I told them I, I needed to... Uh, I introduced myself, or somebody I think asked me who I was, or if I was Jim Banish, and uh, so I, I told them I wasn't, that I needed to them to get out of the way so that I could go inside and check on my brother. And they didn't want me to go inside, and they said it was an active crime scene or whatever. And and I uh, I told them basically in a nutshell that uh, look, I made a promise to my mother. Now you or anybody else is going to stop me. I need to go check on my brother. And uh, so an investigator came over um, and went with me, and uh, I was able to to look in on Joe and to, to, to look at him and see what happened. Joey was still in uniform, and uh, he had taken his, his uh, service weapon uh, to his temple, and he, he shot himself. I knew that there was nothing I could do. Uh, I looked him out, up and down, and uh, they had already, EMS had already been there, and they tried working on him, and there was he was gone. I stepped out of the house uh, area and um, called my mom back, and I told her that uh, I gave her the bad news. It was the hardest phone call of my life. Uh, I'll never forget it, and um, <clears throat> it uh, it was uh, it'll bring you to your knees, you know, when you have to do something like that. I had to tell my mom that her son was dead, and uh, I didn't have a brother anymore. I did that, and I told her to you know get to get to Albany safe, and that we would um, we would take care of it from there. So um, I was able to um, to make sure that the scene uh, after they removed my brother from from the scene that it was. It was cleaned up, and it was something that my parents wouldn't have to see, or my brothers and sisters wouldn't have to see. Um, you know, going going forward, at least they wouldn't have to see what I saw. Um, I wish I hadn't gone in, uh, but at the same time, I made a promise to my mom, so I'll, I'll never regret um, fulfilling that promise. But, uh, yeah, I get that know. part too, because my mind will say, "I wish I hadn't seen that," because you can't unsee these things. And those are the visions that haunted me for years right. after. And, and thank it God was, I didn't have a, a loved one. But I, I remember anybody who's done police work for a period of time, you've been on scene for these type calls. And they are horrendous. And um, I, I'm not going to go into details about trying to explain them, but I, I actually have nightmares about a guy who set himself on fire with gasoline. And that was a young rookie cop. And we got the call, beautiful spring day, Jim. You know, I'm driving down the street and, I'm thinking, and my mind is screaming. What do you do? Yeah. What do you do? I don't know what to do. And I hope to God this isn't real. And it was real. Yeah. To this day, I still don't know what to do or how to process it. Uh, it's it's unbelievable, the stuff that we have to deal with on a daily basis. It, it really is. is. And it, it's not so, I was talking with a guest on a show uh, a little while ago. I said it, the accidents were bad. When people got hurt in, in a house fires by accident or killed or car accidents, they were horrible. But they were accidents. My mind could kind of deal with that. It was, 
the the violence and the trauma that people inflicted on each other all the time and then at times towards me that became unbearable or that stone in the pail that just could not pick up anymore and this isn't a little stone you're talking about with your brother this is a this is a boulder yeah we had a boulder here and there it was uh it was definitely a boulder but uh you know uh con- just to continue with the story i didn't want to be perceived as being crazy or have this stigma attached to me and i rushed myself back to work you know i was i went back to work on the 19th of april and um my first call back was a, a double fatal of two teenage girls you know so i didn't even get a break and then uh, shortly thereafter i had a guy uh, take his life in front of me with a 38 special under his chin and then it was just fatal after fatal and suicide and suicide and that just didn't stop and i just could not imagine you know i just couldn't figure out how much can one person take you know I'm, I'm sick of seeing death i'm sick of dealing with scumbags i'm tired of this bullshit at the office i'm just i'm done but again i wouldn't reach out to anybody myself because i didn't want to be you know i listen to my brother don't talk to anybody because you'll have a stigma attached to you. you you'll never get promoted Thankfully, I did in 2010, and finally in January 2010, uh, I sought help, and I went to see a psychologist who was a retired cop, and um, it was the biggest breakthrough of my life, and I felt like the world had been lifted off my shoulders, and I started going back. I continued therapy, and then I realized in doing so, and when I started feeling better, that there wasn't there for other officers. Why don't we do this? Why isn't there something out here for us that we don't have to worry about? And I started asking other officers, and people started coming to me and calling it asking, how'd you get better? How did you do, you know, and I would start giving people resources and it started growing bigger and bigger. And I ended up being pretty much all of New York state taking, you know, going to different places throughout the state when they had issues in their agency. And I would give them resources, help them out, talk to them. I was getting called out all hours of the day and night until finally my sheriff had, uh, he called me in and said, you know, you're, you're leaving a gap on the platoon because you're getting called away so much. I thought I was getting jammed up. I thought I was getting fired. And uh, that's the day he promoted me. He promoted me full-time to peer support coordinator so that I could continue to do this, not only in our agency and the surrounding agencies, but continue to do it throughout the state and throughout the country because it was obvious that it was helping. It was obvious that it was helping not only our agencies, but helping officers all over the place, that we just needed a little bit of hope. We needed another cop, another peer to be on our side, to have our back. And that's why this program has grown so far and so fast and so furious because I do have their back. I protect their confidentiality. I make sure that they get what they need, whether it be getting back to work, getting retired, whatever benefits are coming to them. I take them from start to finish, and I teach my peers to do the same. We don't leave anybody behind, and we give our service. We give them the best service possible because we deserve it. To be a favor, when you have a chance, tell that sheriff I said thank you because many don't follow that lead and don't do that. They they. They do the quite exactly. quite the opposite, and it's and I that's told a them, big I deal. Told them, I said, Sheriff, you're an anomaly. This is <laughs> it doesn't happen like this. It's a big deal, well, and the reason why I say this all the time is, you know, we expect a lot from our our police and our law enforcement first responders, and rightfully so. We want the best of the best. If, if I got to call nine one one for a family emergency in my house, I want the best to show up, and mm-hmm. so we expect the best from them, and. When we have administrators or police chiefs, whatever out there, that's always about the citizen and never about the cops. If they don't have a balance between the two, they're part of the problem. So your sheriff is certainly part of the solution, and and you're part of the solution. So we have people that are struggling anywhere in the United States, and they can get some information from you. What do they do? do What's the first place they turn? 
Well, there's there's plenty of organizations throughout the country. Like I said, we work with 16. There's 16 total states with just within the LEAP program. And then there's other peer support programs out there. But we make sure that we, we put them in touch with resources in their area. I've dealt with uh, people like in Oklahoma that called me a, a trooper and his wife needed help in Oklahoma. I was able to find services out there and, and do what I could over the phone. I didn't have to fly out to Oklahoma, but I definitely got them the services that they needed. They remained confidential. They got taken care of. They got what they needed, and they got back. You know, and you talk about my sheriff. You know, there's a difference between leadership and management. We have a lot of managers in this line of work. We don't have a lot of leaders. And uh, it takes a sheriff like mine to be a true leader to show that he's got each other, that he's got our backs and got the backs of other officers. So that's a, there's a big designation there when you're talking about leadership and management. Absolutely. And we need more leaders because our communities deserve it. Our, when I say our communities, our, our law enforcement are part of our communities as well. And they're the ones who come to your house. Well, I love our firefighter brothers and sisters. We'd love to tease each other. But when you call 911 because there's an emergency, it's the police that show up or law enforcement first because they're closest. Then they show up. And I'm not saying as a negative, uh, but these men and women need our help. And if you need more information, whether you be an agency or an officer struggling, go to NY for New York, LEAP, L-E-A-P dot org. Jim, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. If you haven't done so already, please download our app. It's 100% free. We got versions for your Android and iPhone devices, 100% free. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Be sure to get yours today. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest in your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.